Welcome to the Lentil Intervention Podcast, raising awareness and inspiring action for personal and planetary health with your hosts, Ben and Emma. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 37. My name is Ben Adelberg. And I'm Emma Strutt. And uh, as always, not only do you need to ensure you're subscribed to and sharing this podcast, but please do take the time to visit our website. In particular, take a look at the three campaigns we're already working on, which we do need your support. So Emma, let's take this one away. All right. So today we are joined by the one and only Michael Mayle. Michael started one of New Zealand's best known brands, Cookie Time, at the tender age of 21 and has been innovating and creating ever since. Michael's business motivations have evolved over the years and he is now on a campaign to ensure everyone has the same opportunities to enjoy good personal health and a great environment. So Michael is spearheading a number of social enterprise initiatives, including Drinkable Rivers NZ, which we'll be talking about today. He's a man on a mission with a fascinating personal story. So Michael, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, well, thank you, Um, Emma. I loved hearing your word code. So thank you for that beautiful introduction. Well deserved. Michael, uh, let's. Uh, Emma gave us a little tease into into your background, but uh, let's take a little deeper dive into it. Uh, tell our tell our listeners your 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 personal background, your journey to becoming, and I quote here, a regenerational entrepreneur, um, and of course your personal journey to becoming plant based as well. So mm. that's probably a whole conversation in itself. But uh, let's start that journey. Well, here's how I'd like to tell that story. Three years ago, my mother died after a long, slow goodbye with Alzheimer's, which was beautiful and sad. Two years ago, my dad died. Last year, my last two teenage children left home. And this year, I moved into a motorhome and dropped my 18-year-old off at Outward Bound. And I've spent, I spent the first nine months of this year watching every sunrise in bare feet and really putting myself in nature. So that's what I've been doing this year. And then, of course, I turned 60 in, on May the 9th this year as well. So I kind of feel like a teenager with his car, with his first car. And what's just happened is my, after nine months of, of this lifestyle, watching sun, every sunrise and all over New Zealand, just having really regenerative conversations with people. And um, eventually I kind of got into a pattern where I would wake up in the morning and work till 11 o'clock. I oh, Sorry, not work, work, be, not talk till 11 o'clock. And that would just be my time for me to be with me, meditating, contemplating, enjoying nature, getting some exercise. And then I'd spend from 11 till I went to bed working on my projects, which are all regenerative for people, for the planet. Um, And there's about eight of them that have just sort of morphed up over time. And um, I'm a minimalist vegan is the best way of describing where I am now. Less is more. And the more things you own, the more things own you. So... 
So for your last three years, this journey would have been on the complete opposite end of the spectrum yeah. to being 21, starting a new business filled with stress, anxiety, yeah. Yeah. all about making profits, wasn't it? Yeah, well, I think I that didn't wasn't my experience. And um, I was kind of fortunate. My, my mother took our whole family to learn transcendental meditation when I was 14. And so that was when the Maharishi Yoga brought meditation to the West, including New Zealand. And, um, and that was that along with the books and things that my mum was reading that I just sort of naturally followed. So I, I really got on to a pretty healthy diet very early on. I stopped drinking milk when I was 21. So yeah, so, so basically through cookie time, um, I, my stress levels, I didn't really suffer from stress levels, actually. Um, I'm ADHD, I was full on. I was so energized from being on purpose and working. Yeah, I'm just trying to remember back now actually to it, right? I know that I experimented with a little bit of veganism in, the, in my 20s and a little bit of vegetarianism. Essentially, I mean, I've always just been, I've always had tons of energy. Now, Cookie Time has been around since 1983. It has become a Kiwi institution and it was started on a shoestring budget. Uh, take us through the backstory. Cookie Time was the fourth business that I started. The first business I started was at high school with my brothers making and selling garden refuge bags door to door. And we had someone working in mum and dad's garage making them and we were selling them. And then we started wholesaling them to garden shops. Um, so we were, we were sort of like entrepreneurial. My grand, both our grandparents were entrepreneurs and it was just in our system, I think. Yeah, when I was 18, that was when I decided that I wanted to start my own business. You know, I'd been thinking about all sorts of different things and um, I didn't have the confidence to start my own business at 18, funnily enough. I don't know. I just didn't. And I got a job, who you know, not what you know, and being in the right place at the right time, promoting Ski New Zealand to American travel agents in America. And so it was, we, we got to do some heli skiing and we got to go over to, to America and basically be the voice of New Zealand skiing because mm-hmm. um, they wanted Kiwi accents and we were just Tough in the right gig, place. it sounds like. Exactly. It was like a dream job getting paid to basically, and they were paying for everything. So while we were away for a year, um, all the money I was making was piling up in a bank account because I wasn't having to spend anything because they were paying for everything, food and accommodation as we were traveling around doing these speeches and going to ski group 82. And and when I got back from the job, I had $10,000 in the bank and no job. Right, what am I going to do? I better start the business that I said I was going to start when I was 18. Perfect timing. So what am I going to do? And I tried two businesses that failed and then I did cookie time. So Mm. the two businesses that failed were key ring ice scrapers. I took a a mold that my grandmother had that made plastic key rings and I took the mold in and I got these plastic pieces of plastic made that were the shape that were pot scrapers in the 50s and I turned them into a key ring ice scraper and sold them to service stations. And um, it wasn't unsuccessful. I sold a box to every service station, but it was never going to make any money in New Zealand. And then I started a Garden City night spot tours, and it was taking tourists around night spots, dr- drinking alcohol when, when it, because of transportation. There's a whole won't go into that one. Um, but that was well. That one basically the only tour that ever actually 
went was with the travel agents who were doing a familiarisation tour. And um, it was obvious by the second place that we were going to um, that this business wasn't going to work. So it was the, probably my the failure, the biggest failure I've ever had. And I really value failures. I think failures, we need to lean into failures and fail more. And, um, They're important lessons. Exactly. That's where we do our learnings. We need to fail as much as we can safely. Um, so then the th- so, so basically those two businesses burnt through half of the $10,000 and then I had $5,000 left and I went, what am I going to do now? And that's when I remembered that when I was in America promoting Ski New Zealand, um, the woman that we were staying with, we were staying with a South American, we being my best friend and I, Mark Fulton, who got the job to do this. Um, we um, we were staying with the, the, the North American sales manager and his wife, and his wife, Diana, took me and stood me in front of the Mrs. Fields hot cookie shop in Marin County, California, and said, you should do this in New Zealand, because I told her that I wanted to start my own business. And so she took me, and that, at that time, Debbie Fields cookies were going gangbusters everywhere in America, just from naught to 600 outlets um, in a year or two. Um, and so that was the idea. I thought, right, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to copy. I'm going to do that. And I got out a napkin and worked out that I couldn't do that because it was going to cost $30,000 to set up a shop and copy the way she had her hot cookies selling in the mall. Um, so I came up with the idea of, um, well, I know, I'll have four stores, one in the north, south, east and west of Christchurch. I'll, um, what will I sell them in? I know, a cookie jar. That's the ultimate thing to sell a cookie in. And I've only got four stores. I was thinking 75 stores at that time. Um, and so, um, and I knew where to go and get cookie jars made because um, one of my jobs had been cleaning 150 toilets a day at Crown Crystal Glass. Um, and so I knew all about glass blowing. And so it was like I went and saw my old boss to get the glass cookie jar made. Um, and drew it on a napkin for him and said, I need the mould to make this. Um, so we've now got the, the cookie jar. So how did we get, how did I get the cookie, right? So I've now decided, right, I'm doing Mrs. Fields. I'm doing, I'm copying Mrs. Fields because that would be good, but I haven't got $30,000. Okay, I'll do it this way. I'll have a glass cookie jar um, and I'll go to all the dairies Right, so this is better than couriers delivering them, and this other thing that I had before I came up with that idea. I rang up Debbie, so I rang up Diana, and I said, "Look, I need some cookie. I need some a recipe that makes cookies like Mrs. Fields' cookies, because nothing here in New Zealand is like that." And she sent me a, a packet of Nestle chocolate morsels from the supermarkets over there. So these are dark chocolate drops that were quite a bit bigger than the chocolate chips that you could get in the supermarkets at the time because there was none of that back then. There was only chocolate chips and big lumps of chocolate. So basically, I came up with this, with this idea of making the cookies in a rented bakery. I went, so I got out, got the yellow pages out and I um, looked through it and there were seven bakeries and I knocked on their door and I said, look, I'm looking for somewhere that I can make my own chocolate, make my cookies. Um, how about I come into your place after you've 
finished at the end of the day because all of these places were finishing at four or five o'clock and then not starting until seven o'clock the next morning. And so I went to six places and they all said no. And the seventh place, a guy by the name of Paul Horniblow at Yardley's Bakery, 10 Wickham Street, said yes, I could use his bakery, I could use his oven and his mixer, and, and I could also use his chocolate. No, not his chocolate. He didn't have chocolate yet. Sorry, he had everything but the chocolate. So he let me use all his ingredients, and I just paid him for what I used of his ingredients. He was really, really helpful. So the name. So I'm standing in my um, hallway of my house. This is with Mark that also went to America with me to self-ski New Zealand, and he was my flatmate. And I said to Mark, I said, um, Seven o'clock in the morning, he's in his suit, about to go to work, and I'm working on cookie time, doing everything that you're thinking. And I'm, I'm, in it, I'm, at, I'm at the point where I need a name. I can't do anything. I can't register the company. I can't put, what am I going to put on the cookie jar? Like, I now have to have the name, or I can't go forward. And I said to Mark, I said one morning, I said, and I'm thinking grandma's this and auntie's that. And I said to Mark, I said, Mark, you've got to give me a name for this bloody cookie company. And he said, how about cookie time for serious cookie munchers? And I went, God, that's good. That's brilliant. And I ran into my office and wrote it down and sitting on top of my computer was a little thing called a warm fuzzy. And it was a thing that they used to give travel agents in the, with a, with a well, 800 number. I mean, that's the cookie muncher. And um, so that was the, that was how the name came up. And then, um, yeah, and then I put the cookie jar in the cookie made in mum's kitchen because I didn't have the bakery set up yet because I hadn't actually made any cookies in the bakery yet. I took, I, I put the jar and some cookies made in mum's kitchen in a little tin and I went and visited 72 dairies in Christchurch and 71 of them said yes. So I went in, so basically the story I said was, you know, 40 cents, you sell them for 50, there's no GST at this stage. Um, 20, $30 for the cookie jar, and I'll be back on the 7th of February with your first order. Yep. So then mum and I and a baker lent to me by the owner of the bakery, go into the bakery the first night, and we bake, we, bake, we scale up the recipe for the first time and bake 75 cookie jars or 70 cookie jars with 45 cookies per cookie jar and we put the cookies straight in the cookie jar and put the cookies back in the box and put half of them into mum's car and half of them into my car and went home at about midnight and then got up the next morning and went and dropped all the cookie jars off to the outlets that I'd pre-sold into two weeks before and then I went back to my flat number nine Shrewsbury Street that's quite a coincidence, isn't it? And sitting by the phone, wondering what's going to happen. And then about like um, three o'clock, two o'clock that afternoon, the phone starts ringing. We've completely sold out. Can we please get some more here? And it was just like an instant sensation. When, you know, the first week, 5,000 cookies were sold at 40 cents each, that's what I was selling them for. So that's $2,000 worth of cookies were sold the first week. This is a long time ago. And um, $240,000 worth was sold the first year. And then it doubled every year for the first couple wow. of years. And then it started, then the, the growth started slowing. But it was just the perfect, 
the, the success of cookie time, I think I've always said this, success is never one thing, it's six things. And, it, and, and, and that's the case in cookie time too. It was, it was the right product at the right time, right? Right back then, there were no muffins, cakes, cookies, slices, um, muesli bars. There were none of those things. It was confectionery, it was chocolate bars. And, the, you know, we were the first people to call biscuits cookies in New Zealand because what is actually the difference? Okay, it's a moisture content, but it's, it's as much a name. And we were the first people to sort of use the name cookie. Um, and the word cookie time is very, is a great name for a company because it's a call to action as well. So it's a really good, fun name. You can't say the word cookie without smiling and you can't be unhappy in the moment you're eating a cookie. You know, your mind's on the cookie. You know, it's a total moment of being in the now. Well, we're here all about the hard hitting questions, right? <laughs> and oh yes. to our listeners, what I'm actually holding here is a plant-based cookie time. My question, Michael, is what took you so long to bring the <laughs> vegan cookie out? Well, more importantly, yeah, well, that is a very good question and um, I don't know how to answer it. As fast as you know, I mean, basically, cookie time, I think, needs to be more of a leader in pushing the market forward rather than more of a follower, right? That would be my answer to that question. I, my journey was for the environment, for my health first. And the thing here is that we are so programmed and so habituated to eating meat and drinking cow's milk from the time we were born, we've been surrounded by it. Everybody else has done it. It's a deep program that takes a lot of effort to change, right? It's not easy because it is, um, and a lot for, you know, for a lot of people, it takes a health crisis, right? And the health crisis is a really, that it gets to that point. Essentially, about eight years ago, I stopped working for money and I've been working for people on the planet. And so this, I'm, all I'm doing is reading, researching, having conversations with people like you about things like this. Let's pivot slightly because you mentioned before, you know, that we should be eating our way to health. Um, yes. But you've been on record as saying we can eat our way to drinkable rivers as well. So let, yes. let's talk about drinkable rivers NZ. Like the government, they have that target of a 90% um, swimmable river. Um, such yeah. an outrageous concept that you actually want to go one further and have it, you know, safe to drink as well. Yeah. Um, let's unpack that a bit. Tell us about how that evolved. Okay. Um, well, thanks for that um, thoughtful introduction. Um, so, yeah, Drinkable Rivers, I started, I, I got involved in Singularity University, which is a university in Silicon Valley that, talks about exponential technologies and how fast things, how, that, that, that everything's changing faster and solutions are coming faster. And and one of the things they talked about was the idea of having a moonshot vision for your life, something that just is something big that you're just thinking about and that you're holding out there as, a, as an intention. And I thought that was a great idea. So I thought about it a little bit and because I was also involved in hemp and learning about the phyto plant remediation, the phyto remediation power of hemp at the time, I was aware of the state of the rivers. And so I came up with this idea of drinkable rivers in our lifetime. Um, 
and the idea that if we aim for drinkable, we'll get swimmable, right? But if we bloody aim for swimmable, ninety percent swimmable, we won't get that. So let's aim for a hundred. Let's aim for drinkable rivers. So what would that look like? And I had no idea. I just thought, well, this is what I'm going to focus on for the rest of my life, and I'll probably never achieve it. But it doesn't matter because I'm just going to keep doing it. Um, so anyway, I decided that what I'd do is I'd put up five billboards with drinkablerivers.nz on them and just start getting the word code of drinkable rivers into the newosphere. This is the idea that the, you know, the words we're using, word code, um, um, the word code of the world is certain, is certain words that we're all using and sharing and very you know, like, okay, so here's something really interesting. The word regenerate. The word regenerate is used more in New Zealand than any other word, than any other country in the world. And it's used more in Canterbury than anywhere else in New Zealand. Mm. So, and that ties in with what Russell Norman from Greenpeace see, said to me when I put up the Drinkable Rivers boards, he came and saw me. And he said to me, Christchurch is the epicenter of the ecosystem of change. And he had worked that out before the earthquake and since then Christchurch has had the earthquake and now it's had this massacre which has put us on the front page of the new every newspaper and television station in the world um, so Christchurch is and Christchurch is full of social entrepreneurs and and um, and and full of fly fishermen who are fishing on the rivers seeing them deteriorate over the last 20 or 30 years right so because we we are a city living with six or the 10 most polluted rivers in the country um, we are connected to them and seeing them a lot more than say the 1.5 million people in Auckland so look it's never one thing but our environment informs a lot of it and actually to add to that you say six of the most polluted rivers in New Zealand two of the most polluted rivers in the in the world and our listeners will know this because we cover this a lot. We've had Dr. Mike Joy on twice. Yeah. You know, the, 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 the Canterbury, you know, Christchurch being the heart of Canterbury, that's, that's uh, along with Southland. It's, it's where a lot of intensive dairy farming takes place and hence a large proportion of our, of our, our waterways are yeah. polluted. And that's directly related to the effects of the intensive dairy farming, which you're surrounded by. So Exactly. Yeah, we need to get the cows off. The, we, Richard Branson in 2012, I think it was, or 2017, um, said New Zealand should swap cows for cannabis, which is absolutely what we need to do. Not just not cannabis, hemp, uh, medicinal cannabis as well, and hemp food. It's just like a wonder crop. Yeah. We've never grown it in this country. Um, so I really agree with that opportunity for New Zealand because um, from hemp you can make hemp milk and from hemp milk you can make everything you can make with dairy milk. So, you know, it's 30% fat and 30% protein. Um, it's a really super plant food. Um, we can eat our way to drinkable rivers. Let's eat, if every New Zealander ate three tablespoons of hemp seeds a day, right, that would have this impact. We need to go from wheat mix to hemp seeds. Hemp seeds from Canterbury and uh, rolled oats, whole grain oats from from the south, deep south. Yes, combine those two together. That <laughs> is a product. That's a South Island collab. Right, we're going to take something from the bottom of the South Island, something from the middle. We actually should get something from the bottom, something from the middle, and get some berries from the top or something. There we go. Some throw wild, couple, wild blueberries. A, yeah, throw a couple of berries in there from Nelson region. 
It's a South Island collab. That's what we need to do. That's the answer to New Zealand. We need to start exporting, you know, get small people putting little things and exporting stories to the world, individual people. This We do this. We've been doing this for years and, you know, we need to get people making things on the farm and selling them direct using the channels that are all set up. Unfortunately, we're doing very well with through Fonterra in, in, in exporting the dairy story, but, you know, unfortunately with it comes all the, the negative outputs of that um, as yeah. well, which, which is starting to uh, dispel the, the big myth that is uh, the Clean Green New Zealand. Um, now, going back to the, the drinkable rivers concept, what's the vision? What's your vision with it? Okay, well, the vision is drinkable rivers in my our lifestyle in our lifetime what does that mean it means all rivers drinkable what does that what okay so it's crazy right that's the that's the vision it's like it's can it's like a it's it's just a big hairy audacious goal that um that you hold out there um and then you go well how do we get there and well permaculture principle start off slow right where you are where am i christchurch um well the avon river is one of the most polluted urban rivers in the whole of the country it's my local river i kayaked on it as a kid it's right here i see it every day it's a reminder why not start there and it's counterintuitive because everyone's and this is the problem you know the townies are throwing stones at the country folk while their own rivers are disgrace right clean up your own act and then you can start then you can have an authentic conversation, actually. So if we want the rural folk to clean up their rivers, then let's clean up ours. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's what we've decided to do. And um, that, so, so I put up the billboards and that led to all these conversations. And then that led to, oh, my God, let's, we, we, let's start with the Avon River. Okay, how, where do we start? Oh, let's start right at the beginning of the Avon River, Right. Um, and let's apply the exponential curve that we learned from Singularity University to the story. And the story is, well, look, let's start with the first 100 metres of the river and where it comes out of Avonhead. The Avon River starts in Avonhead, Christchurch. I didn't even know that. Most people don't. Um, but there's actually a spring that comes out of the ground there, and that is considered to be the head of the Avon. It's gushing too. And um, it's already got E. coli levels that are not safe. Okay, so we've got a problem right at the absolute headwaters. So that's um, so um, we decided that we would start the first hundred meters from there, and then year one we focus on the first hundred meters, and year two we do the next two hundred meters, and then year three we do four hundred meters, and then year five eight hundred meters, and then sixteen hundred meters, and it takes seven years starting with a hundred meters, or it might be two. I think, or 150, um, it takes seven years to get to the full length of the Avon River, right, which is 14 kilometres through the city, which my 16-year-old and I paddled in an inflatable raft. It took us eight hours and 30 minutes to go from the headwater to the Bridge Street where the Avon River meets the estuary, and we saw the city from a completely different aspect. In fact, and I'm telling you about it now, thinking, why haven't I gone and done that again? right? Here's an idea. Can someone please do this idea? And you know, lime scooters on the, on the, on all around the footpaths, put lime kayaks all the way down the river and you can just jump in them 
and they cost money if you float downstream, but if you paddle them upstream, you get credit. <laughs> so now we'll pay you to exercise. You run to the river, find a kayak, jump in, paddle upstream, drop it off, run back. I'm in. You're in. in. Been, Sign me up. So, so if someone wants to do that business idea, oh, my gosh, it would be so good. And just give a little bit of a donation to Drinkable Rivers. That would be nice. This is quite an idea so, session this afternoon, isn't it? <laughs> it has been. Oh, goodness. Okay, so we've so Drinkable Rivers. So here's where we are with Drinkable Rivers. We decided, we decided on the Avon, and we decided on focusing on the first 100 metres, which actually has ended up being the first 300 metres because there's a big reserve along there called Corfe Street Reserve. And it so happens that one of our team members, there's five of us that have been driving this project over the last five years. Shout out to Arniki Goodall, my very good friend, who's been instrumental in helping make this happen. Thanks, Arniki. Um, and where was I going with that? Um, okay, so we've been, we're focusing on and we've been focusing on this and we've achieved a lot of good things. Um, we've had a data sensor in there collecting data, live data for a year and a half. We've got Avonhead, sorry, not Avonhead, um, Villa Maria High School engaged in being the kaitiaki and they've done a whole lot of riparian planting down there that we've worked, that we've helped them with. Um, and we've done a lot of storytelling and we've been working through We've been really understanding our role in the water ecosystem because there's lots of amazing people doing amazing things in water and they've been doing them a lot longer than drinkable rivers. It's just this young upstart that comes along and they've been working on their project for 20 years. Um, so, you know, we, we just want to basically help get the word out there. You know, we are, we're, we're the, that's our piece of the puzzle. We want to be storytellers and help tell your stories and, and, and get engagement we, because we're not going to clean up the rivers unless everybody says, I'll do what I can. Then the rivers are clean, right? Until then, the rivers aren't. So that's what we've got to do. Um, so we, we want to – so right now we're, we've also got so, – so good news. Um, in November, we are announcing that um, Nairi from the – Canterbury University PhD in bioremediation. Um, she's putting in a bioreactor, um, a bioreactor. Gosh, I can't remember what it's called now. A bioreactor and ozono and um, nano bubbler, and we're announcing it next month. So this is all um, a little bit. I'm not quite sure of the exact details. Um, but anyway, when we put it in, we're going to be announcing that in one year's time. Um, we are going to have a swimming hole 50 metres from this bioreactor um, and nano bubbler and some other things that we're going to add to it. And we're going to have the very first swimming hole back in New Zealand. And it's even going to have a little data sensor right there saying, you know, this is now swimmable. Because when it's a high rain event, mm. you can't swim there because that causes a lot of poo from ducks and dogs that have been pooing on the side of the rivers that all runs into the rivers that makes the E. coli level go through the roof. And that's why we can't swim in it because E. coli from animal feces mm. um, is the problem with the river. Yeah. Um, and yeah, cow feces um, and dog feces and duck feces. The biggest problem on the Avon River is the ducks. We have to, sorry ducks, they've got to go. They're not native, they're not natural. Their shit is causing the river to be full of E. coli. But in the interim, everyone stop feeding bread to the ducks down exactly. on the river. <laughs> that's, thank you. That's the very simple thing that you can actually do, right? You know, 
this is something some, something from nostalgia we have to change. So anyway, Nairi's coming in. We're putting her stuff, uh, her, her equipment in. We're announcing that in a year's time we're going to have a, a swimmable river, a, a swim, a, the first swimming spot. And this, we hope, is going to start the momentum of really starting to get engagement. You know, we've now got the first 100 metres done. We said we were going to do it. If we can do the first 100 metres, we can do the rest of it. If we couldn't do the first 100 metres, we couldn't do the rest of it. Well, we've done it. And this is it. We understand it. It's this, this is how it all fits together. And um, we can now do it. It's just time and money. You know, basically, you need to, people need to not allow any water to leave their property that is contaminated. Right now, some people's roofs are so, you know, rusty that um, this all rust goes and ends up in the river. So we need everybody, basically, we need a creative solution like everybody collects the water off their rain off their roof and, and lets it, and Seth takes the crap out of it and they use it for feeding their garden and maybe we get hydrogen generation going and they do some hydrogen generation with it. And so that's something that could happen in the future. But, you know, we're going to do this. I mean, the Avon River... If that river was a flourishing work of art, right, it would change the city. People would come here just to experience the river, right? We need to bring the river back to just, it, it, it is the museum, right? It is beautiful. There are birds everywhere, right? It's just money and time. It's just desire, right? And uh, how can locals uh, get involved if they wish? Do they? Uh, we'll, we'll put the link to Drinkable Rivers website on, on, in our show notes. But do yeah. people just simply go on the website, see when you're doing a sort of like a working bee day that people can come along and help out? Or yeah, um, look, basically the website has a whole lot of things that people can do. There are six of them. It's a wee video we've made. There's also a history of the Avon River that we commissioned that's really really interesting um most interesting thing is they used to bring bricks in on ships and put them in at littleton and then put them into rowboats and row them right out around the headlands and up the avon river all the way up to margaret may playground which is a long way up um and that's how they got the bricks up there that they made in england so crazy what a job um so look, the other thing about drinkable rivers, just to mention, is that um, three months ago I was approached by a guy, Etty, a Frenchman, who said, I'm planning on walking the 10 great walks in bare feet, and I'd like to do it as a fundraiser for drinkable rivers. Um, are you interested in talking to me? So I said yes, and essentially he and I, it, it, it all starts starting, he is walking the 10 great walks in bare feet, he's interviewing a different water champion um, on each of the walks, um, and he's, the first one is the Abel Tasman walk that he's doing, and I'm doing that with him, and we're starting on the 15th of uh, October. Now, we do just want to touch on one one other thing, is you're a big fan of hemp, as you've already mentioned earlier, yeah. um, and I think I've read somewhere that you see hemp as, as a massive opportunity for New Zealand. You've really touched on that, but it, it, there's, there's a massive link between hemp um, addressing the health of Kiwis and um, the health of, our, of, of Kiwis and our waterways as well. Do you want to just expand on that a little bit, why you see hemp as such a uh, powerful plant yeah. for New Zealand? Yes, yeah, so... Um... The connection between hemp and drinkable rivers mm. and um, 
uh, and where I see, where I hope it all goes. Um, so yes, there is a massive, there is a massive connection between hemp and, and drinkable rivers because essentially, fundamentally, the problem on the Canary Plains is too many cows, mm. and and you know the way that I describe it is there are. 10 million cows in total, 6.5 million dairy cows, and they each do the excrement of 14 human beings. So we've got the equivalent of 140 million human beings pooing and peeing in the countryside every day. And that's our fundamental problem. And it doesn't matter what you do, you, you, you know, that is the problem. But there are multiple other problems as well. Um, you know, the fossil fuels used to go around in the dairy and the tankers to pick up this milk, which is 90% water, to take it back to a milk factory that's still using coal to dry the milk. And then we send that off as, you know, we're basically a one product milk powder to one country, China. And we need to move to um, multiple products, multiple, multiple products to multiple, multiple individuals. Right, we want to sell from people to people, right, and direct using the distribution channels that we can you can tap into as a, as an individual, um, and let's get making selling food with a story, New Zealand, and so I think so that's the end goal, food with a story, from you know so like freeze dryers. A lot of farmers should have a freeze dryer. A lot of kiwi fruit farmers, any fruit farmers, a freeze dryer would be a really good bloody asset for them. Um, so, because they can turn their waste product into their highest value product. You know, they were going to throw it away because it just wasn't perfect or it wasn't this. Well, now they can freeze dry it and it's now freeze dried kiwi fruit. And we need to, because we can't export water over water, it's crazy to export fruit with water in it. 90% water. So, um, so yeah, so how does cannabis and hemp fit into all that? Well, it fits in because um, we've got to transition from cows to this agri-food forestry um, where we're growing lots of diversity and selling it, selling this, this food with a story direct to consumers minus the water. So we've got to move from this situation of way too many cows quickly and hemp is a one would be a wonderful is a wonderful crop that if new zealand got behind it and we set up the infrastructure to process it and to use it for all of its fifty thousand uses right you can make hemp biofuel from it you can make fiber that you can make clothes from you know bmw are already putting the fiber in their dashboards um you can um, you can eat the seeds. It's the most nutritionally complete food on the planet. It's you know if you it's thirty percent fat and thirty percent protein. You can make hemp milk and it's super nutritional with lots of good ratio of omega threes and omega sixes. The perfect ratio. It's like this one plant that does so many things, and basically hemp has been was made illegal at the same time that marijuana was made illegal as a drug. That also made hemp illegal, which was um, exactly what the, the the wealthy elite of the time wanted because hemp, they just invented the decorticator and hemp was about to have a big impact on 
um, on the paper industry and a couple of other industries. Look, it's called, it's, the book's called Chasing the Scream that has the, the history of it. And um, But anyway, it was accidentally on purpose made illegal at the same time that marijuana was illegal. And, um, and it's just coming back now. Um, and it's been a crazy situation in New Zealand. It's been legal to grow it, but illegal to sell it. And in America, it's been legal to sell it, but illegal to grow it. And so they've been importing lots of hemp from different places. But during this whole 70 years, while the rest of the, while the European, the, the Western world um, wasn't stopped growing hemp, China and Russia, I'm pretty sure, and um, France and where, I don't know where else, but a couple of other places, they kept on growing it. Right, and they've they've you know they know what they're doing, and they and so, but I, I just think it's a wonderful crop for New Zealand's Kiwi ingenuity to get behind, and you know this would give this would give us something really amazing to focus on, and you know I think about it, it's like you know the most vilified career or job is being a dairy farmer at the moment it seems, and the most vilified plant is the cannabis plant, so we're going to put these two together. And they're going to become this, you know. And and the reason why hemp so one of the re, another reason why hemp so good is because it's the easiest plant to grow organically. So we can immediately start growing it without pesticides and herbicides, because that's important. We don't want to start something that then needs pesticides or creates new problems. Yeah. Exactly, we want to minimise the problem, the new problems we create, and this is definitely one of them. But the real benefit of hemp is that it just does so many things. And we could, if we could really harness the true value of the plant, you know, it was the first plant that humans domesticated because they worked out they could tie the, they could strip the, the, um, the fiber off and make it into ropes. It's the longest, the strongest, and the most conductive plant fiber. You know, it's a wonderful, wonderful plant, a wonderful plant. Michael. Thank you so much. This has been a brilliant chat. Uh, we must definitely catch up again in the near future. See how the um, how the drinkable uh, rivers project's coming along. Hundred meters. Yeah. You know, we want to see two hundred. We want to see four hundred. We want to see that fourteen kilometers. Uh, when I'm next down in Christchurch, I'll certainly make a make an effort to actually maybe maybe trace that whole Avon River. I've, I've, I've learned so much about it. Avon Head. Makes sense. That's where the I'll lend you my pack raft. I've got. I'd love you to borrow it, and I'll do it with Brilliant. you. Actually, it's really good. I'm definitely up for doing it again. So Brilliant. Brilliant. But uh, best of luck with your your walk. Um, that's yeah. that's in a week or so. And uh, thank you again. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And um, yeah, shine on. Thank you for listening to the Lentil Intervention Podcast. Make sure you subscribe and share this podcast with your friends and visit the website for more details.